Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. We ask you to guide and lead us and, and show us what you would have us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to know I was also praying with Mark and Sharon and Betsy. Okay. Psalm 148, as we're still in the Hillel Psalms, which remember they're these Psalms at the end of the, of Psalm, the book of Psalms all end with the word hallelujah in Hebrew and end with the word hallelujah. We've covered this each week for the last three or four weeks, but that, just want to keep that in mind. So Psalm 148, praise you the Lord, praise you the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise you, him, all his hosts. Praise you, him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars of, of light. Praise him, you heavens of heavens and you waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He hath also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. Praise the Lord from from the earth, you dragons in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all people, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is excellent. His glory is above the earth and heaven. He also exalted the horn of his people, the, the praise of all of his saints, even the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise you, the Lord. All right, so we have a very positive uh, psalm here. And it starts, praise you, the Lord, or hallelujah, and then it repeats hallelujah from the heavens. Mm-hmm. Halle, praise, Yah, the Lord. Shortened version of the Lord. So we see here, praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. And here the writer of this psalm is saying, God, you're praised even in the heavens and from the high places you are praised. So he's starting right out from the bat and saying, the angels of heaven worship you. And if you remember Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know, and they praise him. The angels constantly praise him in the heavens. Now, I don't know if it's the same angel all the time or if they rotate angels or how they might do this, but the angels wrote, <laughs> praise God. And here this this psalm is saying, praise him. All of the heavens praise him. And it says, praise him all his angels. So that wasn't enough. Everything in heaven. Now whatever else is in heaven besides angels, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but he starts out with the second verse. All of his angels praise him. Okay? And this may just be poetic and repeating himself from the first part. I don't know. I don't know if there's something else in heaven that might be there to praise him. We will be eventually in heaven praising him. And who knows what else is in heaven praising him. And it says, all of his host, his mighty army. The angels are oftentimes referred to as the hosts of heaven, the army of heaven. And that means an organized grouping of people. 
or things. And his angels are organized. We talked about that several, several times, how the angels have archangels and they have powers and dominions and they go down and they keep working themselves down and somehow there's some kind of power authority there and how they get their position, we're not told. Okay, when we enter heaven, there will be authority positions based upon our rewards for our work that we have done on this, in this lifetime. And we will have certain power and authorities. And Jesus told us this, you know, uh, one man was given 10 talents, another five, another one talent. And the one talent just wasted it and said, take it from him and give to the one that had 10 who turned it into 20. And so there's a reward. And he says, you will be rulers over much. Now, what it means to be a ruler in heaven, I have no idea. What it means to have authority in heaven, I have no idea. And because it doesn't really tell us. All it does is say there is. There is these positions of authority. There are these organizations in heaven. And again, what does it mean to do it? I have no idea. I don't know what it means to be, have authority and position in heaven because we just have this idea of what it means on earth. Okay, I'm in charge. <laughs> I'm in charge. You've got to do what I said because I'm in charge. Who knows what it means in heaven? I don't. And this is what it is. And it says, praise him. Give him boast. Exalt him. I love this. Boast in the Lord. And this is what this is saying. Boast, you know, if we can put boast in this place of praise. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord from, from the heaven. Boast in the Lord from the heights. Boast in, boast in him, all you angels and all of his hosts. Boast in God. How much time do we spend boasting in God, praising him, and in exalting him? You know, even sometimes when we say praise God, we're really not thinking about lifting God up in that praise. We're just, we're just, it's words to us. Are we really exalting God in our, in our lifestyle, in our praise, in our worship, to lift him up, to boast in him? I love the idea of people just boasting in God. You know what God did for me this week? You know what God did for me yesterday? You know what God did for me today? Oh, what blessing that we can have if we just start boasting in him lifting him up, praising his name, what would that mean when we come to people, when they see us? And you know, they might say, oh, no, they're going to talk about God again. I've had people say that. Oh, they're going to talk about God again. They're going to give God the glory. And you know what? I love that reputation. That's the reputation I want to have. You, you think I'm going to give God the glory? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to give God the glory all, all that I can because we have nothing without him. And this is what this song is saying, the psalm is saying. Give God the glory. Boast in him. In verse 3, boast in him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you stars. You know, the very heavens boast in him. You know, and this is something in Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. It says, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament to, of the heaven, divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and for years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, he, and the stars also. And God set them in the firmament to give light upon the earth to rule over the day and, to rule, and over the night and to divide the night and the darkness and he saw that it was good and evening and morning was the fourth day God put the sun, moon and stars to be signs in heaven 
And so he's calling, the psalmist is calling on them, the signs of heaven, to give God glory. And we've talked about this. I truly believe that the constellations and the stars were given by God to give him glory. The gospel message is spread across the stars. Redemption, the birth of a child that's born to a virgin that will die to be the, to be the lion, the lion to, that has his foot in the constellation Orion, has his foot over the head of a serpent that's ready to strike his foot as he's getting ready to kill the enemy in his hand. All of these things that, that are out there in the heavens. The scales of justice that show that, that man's great works are deficient in the names of the stars. It's an amazing thing when you see the constellations and, and how they really, in the ancient original format, give the gospel. And he's saying, give, let the stars give praise. And they do. They do give praise to God when they look at the stars and, and understand the reality of what you see in the stars and how much God has put out there. The gospel was not a secondary plan in God's mind. He put the stars in before he created man, before man fell, and then showed him the constellations that put the, put the very gospel in front of them. You know, God has done such a great activity with the world that we don't even begin to fully understand. And he says, let the stars and the sun and the moon praise God, boast about God. And, you know, we think about this, the sun, how bright it is and how, glory, how much glory it has in the sun. And it's only a shadow of, compared to God's grace and God's mercy and God's glory. And yet... God puts it up there and says, look at it. This is a shadow of me. The moon reflects the sun. You know, just as we are supposed to reflect the sun. When God shines upon us, we reflect him. Verse 4, praise him, you heavens of heavens, and you waters that are above the heavens. And he uses the term heavens of heaven. It's talking about his heavens. Okay, In Hebrew and Greek in the ancient world, there were three heavens. There was the heaven that we see the birds flying in. We see the heaven of the universe around us, and we see the heaven where God dwells. When Paul says, I was brought into the third heaven, he was brought into heaven itself. Or actually he says, I know a man who was brought into the third heaven. I know not whether in dream or reality, which we pretty much think, believe it was him that, was, that he's talking about, and almost all scholars believe that it was him. But he says, I went to the third heaven. I went into heaven. The heavens of heavens is that heaven. It says, praise him, all of the heavens. So far, he really hasn't gotten down to the earth yet. He's gone to the heavens. He's gone to the angels. He's gone to the sun and the moon. And now he's going back to heaven. You know, heavens, praise him. This is the poetry, the repetition of the poetry that we face on here. And he's saying, you know, we're going to keep going. And the waters that be above the heavens, the clouds. <laughs> okay, the very clouds, which are water. Okay, when God divided the firmament, he put water above and water below. So we had the oceans and the rivers and the lakes, and we had thick cloud coverage, so much so that it was considered waters and really blocked the world. And I think there was a lot more water in the sky before the flood. And it kept a greenhouse effect on this world. And uh, so he says, there's waters above. Praise him. <laughs> so now he's calling on the waters to praise. 
know, this is kind of interesting. The psalmist is saying, all of creation, praise the Lord. What did Jesus say when he came in on the triumphant entry and the people are crying out, Hosanna, save now, you know, you son of David, you Messiah. And the scribes and the Pharisees say, make your disciples be quiet. And he says, if they were to be silent, the very rocks would call out. I'd almost love to hear the rocks praising God. But God, he said they would. You know, so what does that mean? Somehow nature can praise God. And, you know, we, under, you know, we think about this. How would that be? I don't know. It must be interesting. You know, what does God hear outside of our, our knowledge? I don't know. You know, he heard the very blood of Cain, uh, Abel, crying out against Cain. Crying from the ground, he heard it. What does blood sound like when it's dying? I don't know, but obviously God has a sound on it that he, that he can hear. Cain didn't say Cain heard it, God heard it. What does God hear with all the murder and blood that's been shed over the, over the millennia? You know, it must be horrible to him to hear the blood, especially of the blood that has died violently. You know, it has a sound. Nature apparently has a sound that God can hear that worships him. The only ones that don't tend to worship him is his own people that he created to worship him. And, you know, we see here this, the psalmist saying, I'm calling on everything to praise God. And it's just amazing. I love this psalm because he is just calling on, let the host worship God. Let the sun and the moon, the stars and the sky worship him. Let all the angels worship him. Let all the waters above the, you know, all the clouds worship him. Who knows what the clouds are when they worship him? Now, when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, it was covered with clouds and thunders and lightnings and, and fires came out of it. You know, does, is somehow God in the thunder and lightning and the storms? Does he show himself in it? And we know that he does, and yet we don't always recognize it. And he's saying, let all these things praise him. Then in verse 5, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. Let them, all the angels, all the heavens, all the waters, all the stars and moon and stars, praise him and praise his name. And remember, we've talked about name. Name is so critical for us to understand. Name is not like most people say, I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. So at the end of our prayer, we've put on in the name of Jesus. And half of the prayers we put the name of Jesus at the end of like that aren't been, haven't been prayed in his name. His name literally is all of his reputation and standing. We do not really have to put the name of Jesus in the name of Jesus at the end of our prayers if we are truly praying in his name. Okay, when we speak as Christians, we are supposed to speak in his name. We are his representatives, his ambassadors. We live and breathe and present his reputation. We've shared this with you many times. It used to be in the old days that people would go, you have a name and your family name is important. It has a reputation attached to it. Whether good or bad, it had a reputation attached to it. When we read about the name of God, the name of Jesus, it is all of the reputation behind his name, his love, his grace, his mercy, his enduring 
grace to us, his enduring mercy to us. And it says, this is my name. Are you making requests that are according to my name? God, I want, I want to have a great big Lamborghini in the name of Jesus. And God's saying, I don't think that is in my name and my reputation. So no, you haven't prayed in my name. Now, if you have some good reason why you need a Lamborghini, God might say, okay, it's in my name. But I don't think that the average person needs that kind of a car. A viper. A viper, yes. <laughs> uh, but, you know, if you go to God and you say, God, we really need in this church a van so that we can have a ministry to pick up, pick up people. Now we're praying in his name and with his heart. And we don't have to put in the name of Jesus at the end of that prayer because that is a prayer that would be after his heart and after his reputation. And when we go out and do anything in his name, it must be in alignment with his reputation and his life. Otherwise, name is nothing. It is just tacking on uh, some words, you know, because this would be what would happen. You know, the prophets so often said, thus saith the Lord. And everything after they said that had better be what the Lord said and match up to what he said. If it wasn't, they were, they were in trouble. If a representative of the king says, in the name of the king, they better be speaking what the king wants them to say. And there are people in, the, in many times where they've spoken in the name of the king to do what was good for them because they were second or third in charge, and they would tack on, in the name of the king. You know, yeah, Haman was a good example of that. You know, doing things that weren't righteous, weren't in the king's heart. When we come up to in the name of God, do we really understand how serious this is? You know, I am calling on God's reputation when I speak for him. When I share the gospel, I am showing the heart and the love of God toward individuals. Name is so important, and we've talked about this so many times, but name is important because it's all the reputation and heart of God represented by his name. And I've shared with you, my dad used to say, you're a Wells, this means, and he'd go through a long list of things that it meant. You know, you're going to be a good hard worker, you're going to be dependable, you're going to be on time, and, you know, and that was his mindset. If you were a Wells, this is what you were. We are Jesus Christ bride. It has a great standard that we're to be held up to. You know, we think about this recent marriage in England between the prince and his, and his new bride. She has a whole new level to live up to that is going to be tough for her because she wasn't grown up in that type of mentality and thought. She has to change every way she thinks, no matter what she says represents the throne. Whatever we say represents Jesus Christ. Whether it's right or wrong, it represents Jesus Christ to somebody. And it puts us at a great position that we need to think about what we say. We need to think about what we do. Are we speaking with the love of God? Are we speaking with the words of God when we speak? Or are we speaking in his name, applying human standards to it, and bringing his name down into the mud because of what we are using as an example? Here it says, praise the name of the Lord why? He says, because he commanded and they were created. And this created means created from nothing. He spoke. He said, come into existence. You know, what an amazing thought when you think about this. 
God started with nothing, and he created the heavens and the earth and just spoke them into being. He said, let there be light on the first day. And he says, there was light. And this wasn't even the sun. This is just light. God created light. I don't understand that. Well, none of us do. He is light, so basically he's creating a demonstration of himself. Then he starts building an earth that we can live on as human beings. He finally creates man. And you know, man is the first thing that tells us that he didn't just speak into existence. He gathered up dust and formed man. Oh, I don't know what all went into that. I don't know if there was speaking involved in it to change that dust into to flesh or what he did, but he created a man. And he put that man into the garden and he said, name the animals. And he brought all the animals to him and he named all the animals. All in one day. You know, all in one day, even not even in a full day. It didn't take him a full day because God created the animals first, then he created man. Man named the animals. And then God said, it's not good that man is alone. Okay, all in day six. No, he had the animals, but he had nobody like him. And he put him to sleep and created and made surgery and drew the bride out of his side and said, this is your wife. Adam, this is your wife. And do you understand that Adam was in also a picture of Jesus Christ? On the cross, they thrust the spear up into his side and out came water and blood and the church was formed out of his side to be his bride. You know, what a picture that was in the very, very beginning of the church, the bride being taken out of the side. And Jesus had the church taken out of his side. Oh, we start bringing these things together and we see the glory of God. And then man sinned, fell from God, and God had to redeem us. He had to pay the price for us to be redeemed. And ever since, we've struggled with being able to represent God and his word and his name because of the sin of man, sin of Adam and Eve that brought sin into humanity. And not only bringing sin into humanity, it brought sin into the whole world and corrupted the world took a perfect world with perfect weather, perfect conditions, perfect growing season, animals that never attacked anything because they were vegetarians and did not eat meat, and turned the world upside down. Paul says in Romans that the world groans for the day of Christ's return because it knows that it's not where it belongs either. All of nature groans because it has been turned upside down because of man's sin. And God had to redeem man. And to know that he knew that man was going to sin is just a mind-boggling thought. Knowing that they were going to sin, and he still created man so that he would redeem man to worship him is an amazing thought. God wanted man to worship him because man wanted more than anything to worship him and obey him. But he had to let us live, sin, and he had to die on a cross so that he could buy our loyalty by purchasing our sin with his blood. And that when we go to heaven, he will finally at last have. Ah, oh, pastor, is that true? We are going to worship him for eternity, yes. 
and I don't know, because God was complete within himself and needed nothing, which is why it's hard to understand why he created man, because most people lean toward what you say, and he wanted somebody to worship him. But God was complete. He had fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity and didn't need anything from man. We don't know what the angel's relationship is with him. We know that we're going to be his bride, so we don't know what the angel's relationship with God is. But knowing ahead of time, and I'm sorry, but knowing ahead of time, knowing he was going to pay the cross to have us for at what cost? I never knew you went that extra step. Well, it's just how deep. And what does God get out of it? He gets us worthless human beings. That he had to buy, that he had to buy. So, and we get him. You know, I get a deal that's that I'd be a fool not to accept. God gets me, and I get him. Amen. You know, and it really is. God gets us. Sin, awful sinners, and he paid a huge price for it. We get him. We get the riches of heaven. We get everything there is in heaven given to us to become part of his family. You know. And you look at that and say, well, God, you, you're getting a really raw deal out of this. We get everything, and you get us? <laughs> you, you get us? What kind of deal is this, God? Why would you do this? And I oftentimes have thought that. God, what, you know, are you just making a really bad deal? <laughs> you know, what are you getting out of this that is so special? You get us, and you paid a heavy price for us. Why did he do it? Why did he create mankind? And it's something I can't understand. The Bible really doesn't explain it to us. We know that he created knowing that we were going to fail. We know the redemption story was already in place because Jesus was a lamb slain before the foundations of the world. Because as soon as he said, yes, I will die for, the, for these men that we're going to create, God treated us as if Jesus had already died. They talk about the, the pre the saints from the Old Testament, and they go, Jesus, God couldn't redeem them until Jesus died. Baloney. Jesus died the moment he said, yes, I will die. I will die for these people. God the Father said, it is done. Now, it didn't get completed until he actually went to the cross, but as soon as Jesus said, I will do it, the Father says, okay, I, God, have said that it will happen it will happen because God lives outside of time. The same way he looks at us and says, you are perfect. Why? Because he sees us where we will be at the end of our life. And he says, you are perfect. That's how I see you. I see you as you will be in the millennial kingdom, not as you are now. Because God is outside of time. He declares us perfect. And in his eyes, we are perfect because he's already seeing us standing before the throne glorified. And we're not there yet because we're being sanctified in our days, day-to-day -day walk, but God already is in the end times seeing us glorified. The power of being outside of time is something we can't comprehend. God has got so much more in mind. He understands things that we don't understand because he created everything. And he sees the beginning from the end and everything beyond the beginning and the end on both directions because he's eternal. 
He existed before the beginning. He knows everything that happened before the beginning of our time. He exists after, and note that I said exists, present, after time, and knows all of that time, whatever that might be. And we have this little sliver of time that we don't understand, and God says, well, you know what? I already know you. When Jesus said, I will die for them, God already knew who was going to accept him and who was going to be in his family. Because he knew all of what was going to happen. It's an amazing thought process. All right, verse 6. He has also established them forever and ever. He hath made a decree which shall not pass. You know, here we go. God is established. What has he established? His creation. You know, once he gets to the end of the millennial kingdom and he destroys this cursed world with all of its problems, he's going to create a new heaven and earth. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are literally become new. Jerusalem will come down from the heavenly. And, you know, we, we talk about that city, and it's just a small city, 1,500 miles uh, wide, 1,500 miles uh, long, and 1,500 miles high, which tells us definitely we're in a new, new world because you can't go 1,500 miles without losing, losing your oxygen. And God says, this is how tall it's going to be. It's a huge, monstrous place. And he could raise the oxygen level. He could make us that we don't need oxygen. Who knows what, what it means? There's a new creation, a new, new heaven and earth, new rules. You know, and people go, well, how can he get all those people in there? That's an awful lot of space. 1,500 miles is one half of the United States in all directions. And then we're going up. But you know, 1,500 miles is, even if you had a mile, mile high ceiling, which is ridiculously high, you'd still have 1,500 stories. Make them more reasonable. How many stories do you have in that? Oh, I, won't, I never even calculated it, but you'd have a lot of rooms in a city that large. Lots of room. You could fit the population that's all existed in the world in that and give them lots of room to live in. Uh, verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth you dragons and all deeps, hail, a fire and hail, snow and vapor, storm, wind, stormy wind fulfilling his words, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and flying fowl, kings of the earth and all the people, princes and all the judges of the earth, both young men and maidens, old men and children. <laughs> it's kind of making sure he covers all bases here. Praise the Lord, worship, boast in the Lord from the earth. He's moved from the heavens to the earth. And it's kind of interesting when we look at this. His first thing he mentions is you dragons. We've said this before. When you read dragons in the Bible, you can substitute dinosaurs. Dinosaurs were called dragons before they were called dinosaurs. Plain and simple because we've seen the pictures uh, all over the... Asia, all over the place, and you look at the, the most of those dinosaurs, you see uh, dragons, you see something that looks like a dinosaur. Uh, so dinosaurs have been around, they were with man. We want to keep this in mind. On day six, God created the land dinosaurs. On day five, he created the sea and the flying dinosaurs. He created dinosaurs. They were on the ark with man. And they have become extinct over the years, as far as we know. There's no dinosaurs left on the land. 
But he says, all you dragons, all you depths. And this is literally talking about the fissures and depths of the ocean. Okay, so he's gone from the heavens down to the deepest things that he can think of, and it's the depths of the ocean. And he at that time didn't understand the depth of the ocean was talking about miles of ocean in the Marianas Trench or the Atlantic Trench that we're talking miles of depth in the abyss. Yeah. So we're looking at this huge, huge depth of water. And he says, from the highest of heavens, from the heaven of heavens, all the way down to the depths of the sea. Yeah. And he might even in this process have been thinking even beyond the depths of the sea to the depths of hell. Because those in hell will have to bend their knee and worship God as well. They're going to recognize God even before that. So he could literally be calling down, you know, even though he says the earth, he could be contemplating even down to the depths of hell. Before the lake of fire is filled, it is going to be filled with people who have bowed their knees to God. The devil himself will bow his knee and praise God before he's thrown into hell. And all of human beings who say, well, I will never bow my knee to, to, this, to the God if there was a God, will bow their knee before God. It'd be too late. They've died in their sins and they're going to go to hell, but they will bow their knee before God and be cast into, the, into it. So he says, all you dragons, all, all the depths, fire and hail. You know, so any fire, any, any of the, the hailstones, snow and vapor. He's talking about nature here, okay? All the snow, all the vapors, the rains and the steams coming up from the ground, stormy wind, which is talking about whirlwinds and tempestuous storms, fulfilling his word. And I love this, the, the whirlwinds that fulfill his word. You know, we, we in our modern day have kind of gotten away from this, but in the past, people have attributed bad storms and, and attacks from him to God. It is still true. Not every single storm is from God, but many of them are from him. England was about to be taken over by Spain and their navy when a storm came through and wiped out the Spanish Armada. And they praised God for the storm because God, they said God sent the storm. All through our history in America, we had storms that stopped battles and, and turned, turned the tide of battles. God moves with weather. And we need to keep in mind, not all weather is God moving, but God still uses weather. He says, in the last day, there will be earthquakes in diverse places. What are we seeing? We're seeing earthquakes in crazy places nowadays. We're seeing volcanic activity in places that we did not ever expect to see volcanic activity. God uses weather because he is in control of it. He is sovereign. And here he's saying storms fulfills his words. They come in where he says and they do what he says to do. Satan can do nothing without the permission of God. And Job is that great book to tell us that. He can do nothing except what God gives him permission. Have you considered my servant Job? Of course I have, but you've got to discard. Okay, you can, you can, take, you can take away his possessions, but you can't touch his, his body, so he loses everything. Uh, he's considered my servant Job, of course, but you know, if skin for skin, if I was to take his health, he'd, he'd curse you to your face. All right, you can go touch his skin, but you can't kill him. Okay? Now, 
sometimes we look at it and say, God, uh, you, give, you give them a lot, a lot of leeway here. I don't, I don't want this much leeway. And God says, I've got a purpose. I know what I'm doing. You may not know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Job learned some great lessons through all that he went through. His so-called friends or disciples learned some lessons by all that Job went through. Job learned that prosperity gospel is a lie, that you do good and you will only be blessed and you, and you get cursed for doing wrong. He learned the prosperity gospel was a lie, and he was able to then treat his friends and, and educate them and give them blessings. And so we see God moving in his life and then giving him his blessings back. We see in the hardships of our life, God working in miraculous ways to teach us things. And we learn from the hard things. Very few of us learn very well when things are going right. Oh, God, thank you. Oh, I've got all these blessings. I don't have to depend on you for anything because look at all these blessings I have. And, you know, we may not be quite that blunt, but the way we live is that blunt. And he's the blessing. So he says, okay, let me take some of these blessings away so you realize that I'm the blessing. And so we see here God saying, I'm in control. I'm in control of everything. Then he says, mountains and all hills, fruitful trees and cedars. So he says, the, the tall mountains and all the hills, you're, you're, you're to praise me. Fruitful trees, domesticated trees, and cedars, the forest. Okay, trees, you're, you're to praise me. You know, and, and there's those people that have the imagination that say, yes, that the trees waving their leaves and things are worshiping God. And that could be, I don't know. It's, there's too much into that for me to get into. It's more imagination than I, than I can do. But we have poets that talk about that all the time. Beasts and cattle, creeping things and flying fowl. Beast, all the wild animals. Cattle, all the domesticated animals. All the creeping things, all the insects. All the birds. So basically, he's covering everything. He's covering all the bases. Mm -hmm. Okay, now we've got all of nature taken care of. And now he comes down to verse 11. Kings of the earth and all people, princes and the judges of the earth. So the kings, okay, all the royalty, all the rules, and all the people. Both praise God. You know, how wonderful it is that God says, I want you all to praise me. And if that wasn't enough, he said, and the princes and the judges. You know, in case you want to say just, just the kings, he goes, no, all of the royalty, all of the government positions are going to praise me. Oh, would it, wouldn't it be nice if all of our governments praised God and did things righteously? But they don't. Verse 12, both young men and maidens, those in the prime of their life, old men, and we could put women in there too, anybody who got older, and children. Okay, so all of you people in the prime of your life, you're going to worship God. All you older people, you worship God, and all you little children, you worship God. And how often do we excuse, especially the children? Oh, they don't know any better. They're, they're, they're learning. I feel so sorry for the children who get that attitude. I got saved when I was 10 years old, and that was already four or five years too late to, to really be worshiping God from the earliest age. You know, God says the children will worship him. He holds even children accountable for their sin. And when does he say that we're accountable for our sin? I don't know. 
When do people know that, they're, that they are sinning? A lot earlier than, than the church has said in the past, especially the Catholic Church. It says, you've got till 12 years old. You can be as bad as you want until you're 12 years old and you're going to heaven. And I don't know. I've seen an awful lot of young kids that are very undisciplined and know that they're doing wrong. It, it is a lot younger than that. What age? I don't know. I've watched a six-month-old knowing that they're doing wrong and they're looking at you as they're reaching out to touch. Are they cognizant enough for God to judge them? I don't know. They have a sin nature. And so I don't know where God's mercy and grace starts. They have a sin nature, and they live that sin nature out in disobedience. Now, they may not be able to make a conscious decision for Jesus at that young age, but they're definitely making a conscious decision for evil. You know, he's calling young, old children to praise Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, his reputation. All the people praise God's reputation for his name is excellent. It's exalted. There is nothing greater than the name of God and his reputation. And we need to understand that and give great praise and worship to him. And then this next statement is, his glory is above the earth and heaven. His glory, his splendor. Think of the greatest thing you have ever seen in this world, whatever it might be. A sunset, a storm, uh, you know, the, whatever it might be in your mind. Some people would be the Grand Canyon. They see this great hole in the ground and... And, the God, and what God has done. They see the sunrises and the sunsets. They see the mighty works of God in, in, in people's lives. Whatever the greatest thing you have ever seen, God's glory is greater. God's great glory is greater than the greatest splendor and majesty that you have ever seen. God is a thousand times, a million times, greater. His glory is above all the earth and heaven. Whatever it might be, and I leave that in general because everybody has something different. You know, some people see his great glory in the, in the sunrises and sunsets. They see in the, the work of God in the daily lives. They see it in the birth of children. They see it in the, the, the redemption that God has given people and the new life he has given for Christians in you know, all different ways that God shows his glory in this world and his glory is greater than anything that we have seen. You know, can you imagine what it would be like in heaven to really see things with unveiled eyes and truly see God for who he is? I can't even imagine what that is. You know, we sing the song, I Can Only Imagine, and you know, I, there's certain things that I don't really like about the song, but it's a good song overall. I can only imagine what it'll be like to be in his presence. Isaiah said, fell to his face and, and said, Woe is me, I am undone, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Because you know, he saw the glory of God. So many of the people in the Bible that see the glory of God, the first thing they do is fall because they start recognizing how wicked they are you know, Daniel immediately fell to his face when he saw the angel, and that was just the angel. You know, and he says, this is more than I can handle. 
and our flesh, we can't handle it. And it's going to be one of those things, God's glory is greater than anything we can handle or even imagine. And it says here, it's above the earth and above the heaven. So much above everything. Verse 14, he also exalts the horn of his people, the praise of his saints, even the children of Israel, a people near unto him. Praise you, the Lord. God exalts the horn of his people. That is the ruler, the, domin- the one with dominion. Who is that? Jesus Christ. He exalts Jesus Christ. Jesus came to this world, lived the perfect life, and he's going to be exalted through all of eternity because he is the one that is dominion over all people. And it says, praise his name, all his saints. You know, we are all his saints if we are his children. We are all saints, at least the way God sees us. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We may not think that we're there yet, but God says we are because, again, we go back to he sees us as we will be. He says, you are saints. You may not think so. You may not think you're wrong, but I see you complete. We are complete in Christ, and that's how God sees us. In the finished work of Christ, we are complete. On the cross, he finished the work. He says, you are perfect, and the Father sees us under the blood of Christ, totally glorified, complete, sanctified, set aside, ruling with, ready to rule with him and be the bride of Christ. That's how he sees us. Even though we don't see ourselves that way. And we know that we aren't that way because we aren't in eternity looking at ourselves from where we will be. But we're his saints. And then just in case you kind of lost, even the children of Israel, okay, he calls them, they're his. Why? Because he chose them. He chose Israel to be the bride of, of, of God, is what it says. And, and so they are part. If they are redeemed and the blood of Jesus Christ, they are part of his bride. And it says, I've chosen even them, and then I love this, a people near unto him. God has a special place for the Jews. Whatever that might be, he has a special place for the Jews because he made a promise to Abraham, an unconditional promise to Abraham that his children would be blessed and that they would number as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the sea. And he's made it unconditional. They have a special place in his heart. Because of that, he probably has more demand from them? Most likely. They're, they're special to his heart. He has more, expe- I think more expectation would be, ex- would be said. But really no more expectation than he does for us as Christians because we've been brought into his family and, and engrafted into the We've been engrafted into the olive tree, so we are equal to them as far as his ex- expectation of us to, to be his, his saints and his followers. So, yeah, there's expectations. Those who follow God and he draws near to him, there's an expectation that we're going to be obedient. And some disappointment when we're not. And punishment when we're not. Rewards when we are. And most of that is, God, I, I need to be crucified. Kill me and, and, and let me live the way you want me to live. But he says, these people are near him. When we are in Christ, we are near him. That literally, he's in us. So we're very near him. And I believe for the real saints, of, even in Israel, that truly believe in God, that's how close they are to him. He's indwelling in them. I have said many times that if you know him, you know that you know him because you're in a relationship with him. 
ultimately there must be something that has changed in your life to really say that I know him. And this is my testimony every time I say, when I got saved, God made two really big changes in my life. He gave me a love for his word that was just overabundant and he took away my temper. I was a new creation when I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. Did I have all the answers? Absolutely not. Was I perfect? Absolutely not. But I could say God made me a new creation the day that I prayed and asked him to come into my life. All those that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And do we really, and this again goes back to call, truly believe, the name. What does that mean? What does that mean? Call and believe means to put all my trust in him. My example that I use so often is if you're going to do repelling, and I use repelling because it's such a great example. Now you're going down a, you know, a vertical surface, and at some point you have to say, will this little tiny skinny rope hold me? You could say, I believe that that rope is going to hold me, and you can stand on the top of that wall or cliff and say, I know this wall is going to hold me. But until you go over the edge, you really haven't put your trust in that rope. When I have said, God, you are my only hope. If, there, if, I, if you aren't true, if what you said is not true, I have no hope for heaven. I have no plan B, C, D, E, or F. And I'm a, I'm a manager. I like to have plans A, B, C, D, E, and F. But when it comes to salvation, Jesus, if you're not who you say you are, I have no hope. You are, I have my whole trust in you. Not in what I can do, not in what I can, can accomplish, but in you and you alone in your finished work that you accomplished on the cross, all of my hope is in you. And we sing songs like that. My hope is in you, you know, Lord, you know. But is it really? That is where it really comes down to. He is in my life. He indwells me because I told him I have no other hope. And he has changed my life. And he's been changing my life for 47 years since then. Okay? Making great changes in my life each and every day, each and every year. And I'm going, God, I know you. I know you. There is nobody out there, myself included, that can convince me I do not know Jesus. We have a personal relationship, and he is making changes in my life and has spoken to me and directed me and blessed me in such a great way that I know that I know that I know that I know that I am his and he is mine. And I know his voice. And we need to get to that place where I say, God, I know you and I put all of my hope in you. I'm not trying to live a good life. I'm not trying to live a perfect life. God, I trust in you. He comes in, he crucifies my flesh, and then out comes... And very powerful, but that's how we know that we know that we know that I am in a relationship with him. I'm not going before him and saying, God, you know, I've preached for you for this many years. I've taught for you this for many years. I've, I've witnessed this many times. None of that is all important. Yes, it's good things to do and very valuable, but none of that is going to get me to heaven. None of that is going to make him like, like me more or love me more. It's just what I do because he's called me to do it. Well, God has promised to give us a peace that passes all understanding, and that is full trust in him. And when we have that trust in him, there is an inner peace that is just so strong. How do we get that peace that passes understanding? We get to know him. We get to know him in his word. We get to know his promises, and we put our trust in who he is. 
Jesus is the very Word of God. And the more we get to know the Word of God, the more we get to know Him. And the more we get to know Him, the more we get to trust Him. And the more we trust Him, the more we get to see Him work in our lives. And the more He works in our life, the stronger our faith and our trust gets. Mm -hmm. And this is the process that we start out very weak with God. We don't know anything. All I know is that I was a sinner, and then God God said He died for me. And we accept that. And then we learn how truthful he is and how honest he is and how much he loves us. And it's an amazing thing. The more, we've, the more we learn about him, the more we can learn to trust him. And the more we trust him, the more work he gives, gives, throws our way to do for him. And the more we get to accept him and the more, and the more trials we get even. So, you know, this is, it is a long cycle because he's going to say, do you really believe what you believe? And the more we get to know him, he is going to put us in trials that says, do you really believe? Job was put through a very hard trial because of his great trust for God. And, he, and God used it. How many times do we go through trials? And I've said this over and over again. We get taught something in the word of God. Expect a trial in that area that you have just been taught in. You learned a new level of an er- part of your life. Be ready for the trial that he's given you. Fail the trial, get ready for the retrial, and the retrial, and the retrial, and the retrial, until you finally say, God, I give up, I surrender, I'm going to pass this test, because you're going to be the one that does it. Amen. Because that's what God's looking for. There is a way of escape. 2 Corinthians 10, 13. There is a way of escape. There hath no temptation overtaken us, but such is common to man. But God is faithful who will provide a way of escape. The way of escape is Jesus Christ, and the temptation will always take us to beyond what we can do in our own strength. So if we do not turn to Christ, we will fail. And then we go through the same test again, and if we don't turn to Jesus Christ, we will fail. And then we go through the same test again, and if I don't turn to Jesus Christ, I will fail. Because the test is designed to make us turn to Christ. God, this person is just so obnoxious, there's no way I can forgive them. And God says, fine, I can. Turn it over to me. Oh, no, God, I'm not going to do it. Okay, thank Next time you turn around... God, this person, this new person is just as obnoxious as this other guy that I thought I was moving away from. And God says, well, are you ready to let me be, love them and forgive them through you? And he'll keep doing it until we finally say, okay, God, I surrender. I surrender. The most important thing in our life is to learn to surrender to God. And it's also against our human nature to surrender against God, to surrender to God, even to surrender to God. We don't like to surrender to anything, even to God. And it goes against our nature, and he says, I want to crucify this part of your life. I want to kill this part of your life. Surrender to me. How do I surrender? I surrender, God. I give up. Put my, got my hands up. I surrender. And my example is, if we had the police outside these doors yelling on bullhorns, come out with your hands up, we have an option. We can sit here until they fire tear gas in here, or, or you know, send the SWAT team in to, to, with weapons, or we could raise our hands up, go outside and surrender. That is how easy it is to surrender to God. We decide to do it and say, God, I surrender and mean it. And he will make the changes necessary 
says, okay, good. Now, let me crucify that area and let me put my life in, that, in its place. And then get ready for the next test, which is just be a little harder. Yeah. This is the thing about our life. We're going to keep being tested for the rest of our life. Because God is trying to perfect us. And if somehow we manage to get to perfection, maybe we'll be like Enoch and Elijah and get to go to heaven early. I don't think it's going to happen. At least not in my life. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to get there. But God is making me more perfect with each year that passes along, each month that passes along. He's making me more and more righteous. And I can see the changes. I can see my greater love. I can see greater forgiveness. I can see greater understanding of his word, greater understanding of his character. That is part of getting to know him. And we can fight him tooth and nail to grow, or we can learn to surrender. And the greatest blessing is to learn to surrender. And I've shared with people, it's only been in about the last 20 years that I've learned to surrender pretty quickly. I used to fight God tooth and nail for everything. You know, every little aspect I fought him tooth and nail on. You know, taking years to get past and pass a test. And I am a little dense, but I finally learned. <laughs> I have finally learned pretty much give up. God, you're going to win anyway. Help me just learn to give up. Help me learn to surrender. And there's a great peacefulness in just letting God be in control. Letting God be the one that runs it. Living according to his name, his reputation, and saying, God, I just want to surrender. Now, am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. I still fight and, 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 and argue with him. Not six and seven years like the past, but I, still, I will still argue with him. I've known people who have done decades of arguing with God, and it's like, just surrender. Just give up. And it's, it's not very easy to do because it goes against our nature. You know, it goes against our nature, our flesh, to just give up and let God be in control. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, teach us to praise you and exalt you. Teach us to give up and surrender our lives to you. Help those who don't know you learn to know you. Lord, those who are struggling learn to surrender. And just get the peace that passes understanding by just accepting you and trusting in you and all that they do. In Jesus' name, amen.